Our passage this afternoon is Matthew 12, 1 through 21. Matthew 12, 1 through 21. You can find that in your pew Bibles on page 11, the second page 11. So go to the second half of your Bible, the New Testament, and it's found on page 11. Fourth through sixth graders, thank you. Can be dismissed now with Corey. Matthew 12, 1 through 21. This is the word of the Lord. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, Something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. He went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him? He said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him, how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with, with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Lord Jesus, be our one defense and our righteousness even now as we hear your word. And Father, if in anything I say in these next few minutes, I err or fail to be faithful to your word, may it be that those words will not be heard by your people. Somehow you will close the ears of your children. But if there's anything that is true to your word and faithful to your law, may our ears be wide open and our hearts wide open and our wills made willing by your power. In Jesus' name, amen. 
title this afternoon for this message is Mercy and Justice for All, Part 2. What we're doing today is continuing themes from last week's exposition of the text that Rob just read, Matthew chapter 12, with application to some very real issues of our day. And in doing this, what I'm going to do today, a couple of things. One, I'm going to stick very closely to my notes uh, so that I do not wander for in, in, in the interest of time and in the interest of as much fidelity to the scriptures as I can and making sure that statements are accurate and true to God's word. I'm going to stick to my notes. Uh, and also along the way at different points, uh, there will be a series of statements that will be projected for you uh, so that you can uh, follow along and take some notes if you so desire. Let me, let me say right from the start as I deliver this word to you that God's truth is likely, likely to be an equal opportunity offender today because there are going to be teachings, there are going to be truths that we consider that I believe at one point or another will probably unsettle uh, or distress any number of us, if not all of us, as we measure our lives according to the teachings of God's Word. So I ask that God's grace be with us and help us along. Let me, let me make a couple of statements by way of review, picking up some thoughts from last week. Last week we summarized justice in this way. We said how much we value people determines how well we will treat them. And justice is treating all people in keeping with their true value as measured by God. Was that projected? Let me read that again. How much we value people determines how well we will treat them, and justice is treating all people in keeping with their true value as measured by God. And then second, again by way of review, we, we know people's true value as measured by God by remembering three truths, that they are made in the image of God, they are redeemed with precious blood, and they are destined for eternal glory. When you consider that every single human being has been made in the image of God, that all of God's people have been redeemed with precious blood, and that every human being is destined either to eternal splendor or horror, but either way is destined for immortality. When you consider these things, you realize the value and the significance of every person who has ever lived. Third, justice, according to Matthew 12, is something we do, not just something we say. In this text, Matthew 12, justice includes feeding the hungry, showing mercy to the weak and vulnerable, rescuing those in danger, caring for the sick, including the ethnically diverse, welcoming the outsider, speaking with gentle grace to the bruised and battered, offering hope to the despairing, and discerning and advocating for what is fair and right that it be done for everybody. 
All of that is in the text in Matthew 12. If you're not convinced, go back and study it and you'll find it. If you can't find it, let us know and we'll show you where it is. Justice is something done, not just something said. And then fourth, by way of review and bringing us up to speed for today, this justice is meant for all people without partiality or distinction. It is made for, meant for all people without partiality or distinction. And in fact, by definition, that's what true justice is. It is impartial and it is fair to all people equally. That's the theological significance of verses 18 and 20 where Jesus justice doing and proclaiming is for the Gentiles as well as the Jews. The Gentiles were the ethnically and culturally outside folks, the outcasts, the forgotten and the despised. They're the people of whom the Jews would have said, Lord, them too? You're including them too? Think in your own life of any group of people or persons or kind of persons about whom you might be inclined to think, them too? Lord, them too? Justice is for all people and for all peoples equally. The equal value of each person should mean equal treatment for each person regardless of color or class or condition. That is what justice is, though tragically it very often isn't. It very often is not in our world, but our text has told us that Christ will bring justice to victory. He will bring justice to victory through His Word, through His Spirit, through His truth, through His church, and through His triumphant return, our Lord will bring justice to victory. That's all review. Now, our message for today. Fifth, here we break some new ground. Justice is for the unborn as well as the born, since they are people too. Justice is for the unborn as well as the born, since they, the unborn, are people too. Here in this place, in this congregation, we speak often of the need for justice for people of every color, every culture, every condition, and God helping us, we will never stop proclaiming justice in that way. But what we must see now is that that justice is to be applied both to the born and to the unborn. Perhaps you have been tracking this week's news development coming out of New York where a bill was passed permitting the abortion of a child right through all nine months of pregnancy and, and that all by itself is horrific enough but what was particularly grieving was how this bill was wildly applauded in the Senate room Galilee and even got the One World Trade Center lit up in pink. I posted on Facebook these words, when 
Signers are smiling broadly and galleries are applauding wildly and towers are turning pink all over a bill that signs and seals the death of babies at any point in pregnancy, our sense of decency and commitment to justice must have surely failed. Such abortion supporters are approving what they ought to deplore and wildly applauding what is profoundly appalling. God have mercy on the babies. God have mercy on a debased culture that cheers the freedom to kill its little ones without conscience or consequence. May I say right here, we are very aware and very sensitive that this is a sensitive matter, that there are folks here, women and men, for whom this topic brings particular grief, particular regret and remorse. Please know that whatever your sins may be, Christ's blood is powerful enough and rich enough and strong enough to wash it all clean, just like whatever our sins are, whoever we are, whatever we have done. His grace is sufficient. And please know, I believe, that the greatest blame for this, what is truly a holocaust, the greatest blame is not on the women who have chosen abortion, but on the doctors and the politicians and the cultural elites who have misinformed and manipulated the information for decades now. But dear ones, we need to see, we need to see that this is the ultimate injustice for it robs people, in this case unborn people, of every single right all at once. The right to life, the right to liberty, the right to happiness, the right to due process and a full defense, the right to equal protection and equal treatment under the law, the right to see the light of day. I, I cannot imagine a greater human rights violation, a greater child abuse, a greater social and cultural injustice than what has been going on in our country now for decades. And at current rate, 3,000 babies every day every day are put to death legally sanctioned and gleefully applauded by millions. Brothers and sisters, how we ought to mourn. How we ought to mourn. Now as you think about it, it may be that your heart pushes back and your mind pushes back at at the very content of the statement that I made just a couple of minutes ago when I said justice is for the unborn as well as the born since they are people too. It has been the common rhetoric and the common argument over these last couple of generations that in fact those that are in the womb are not people at all. But 
My friends, science and scripture show us with clarity, science through genetics, with microscopes, sonograms, and other technology shows us this with vivid certainty, clarity, and beauty that the unborn from the moment of conception are truly and fully human beings. The proof of this is so clear and it's so compelling that even many who are not pro-life admit it. The National Geographic had an article a while back called In the Womb, and in that article they write, the two cells gradually and gracefully become one. This is the moment of conception when an individual's unique set of DNA is created, a human signature that never existed before and will never be repeated. Ashley Montague, a geneticist from Harvard, not a sympathetic to pro-life whatsoever, writes this without qualification. The basic fact is simple. Life begins not at birth, but at conception. Professor Micheline Matthews Roth, Harvard University Medical School, it is incorrect to say that biological data cannot be decisive it is scientifically correct to say that an individual human life begins at conception. The genetics and the biology are clear that it is a human child in the womb. Scripture confirms this, my friends, calling the unborn in more places than one, calling the unborn children and calling the unborn Babies, And then Scripture teaches us clearly that the body that's in the womb in its tiny, underdeveloped form and yet developing form, that body has a soul, it has a spirit from conception and throughout their time in the womb and beyond. In Psalm 51, David writes, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Meaning that from the moment of conception, David had a sinful human nature. He was a, uh, not just a body, but a spirit and body joined as one human being. In Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist, while still in his mother's womb, leaped for joy, the gospel writer says, leaped for joy and worship when Mary entered the house with Jesus in her womb. That means that babies in the womb, this is, this is just astonishing, but babies in the womb can have a revelation of who Jesus is. They are human beings whose minds can be awakened by the Spirit of God. The unborn are people too, and so should be given all the rights and all the protections that we give to all human beings. There is no logic, nor is there any science that can argue that the just conceived embryo in the womb is any less of a human being than I am. The only difference, as I've said many times through the years, between the just conceived little boy or little girl in the womb who is no bigger than a period, the only difference right now is 60 years of life, 6 feet 4 inches of height, and 200 and eh, pounds. 
That's the only difference. I've had more education. I've had more life experience. But the only difference between that little one in the womb and me is that I've lived a lot longer. I've lived a lot longer. All this means that the unborn are made in the image of God too, and they are destined for immortality too, and as such they have value, the same value that every other human being has. Conceived babies in the womb are valuable to God, and justice, we learned last week, is what? Justice is treating every person in keeping with their true value as measured by God. And that is true whether they are born or unborn. And so no rights are to be withheld. And if in Matthew 12, justice includes feeding the hungry and taking care of the weak and vulnerable, then the unborn needs to be fed and taken care of. If it means that the unborn are the endangered and the imperiled that must be protected and rescued. They are the sick that must be cared for. They are the unwelcomed that must be received. They are the forlorn and the forgotten that must be remembered and given hope. This means that when the life of the unborn is taken, a massive injustice happens. And if we are truly just people who love justice, and seek justice and do justice, we, we cannot stand by and silently watch it happen. The older I get, and the more that I think as an older white man, the longer I think about the history of our country and the grievous injustices that my father's generation and forefathers and grandfather's generation has committed back 25, 50, 100, 200, 400 years of sorrow and injustice inflicted on others. The more I have thought about it, the older I have gotten, the more I weep and feel ashamed, feel ashamed that my father's and grandfather's and great-grandfather's generations at best were silent and more times than not were outright guilty of injustice. I wonder, my friends, how will believers a hundred years from now how will they think back on us in this generation in which thousands of babies are killed every day and our reaction is ever so muted and ever so silent? How will they hang their head in shame over their fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers? generation. Justice is for the unborn as well as the born, since they are people too.
which leads us to this statement. If justice is to be brought to victory, then we must be united in our mission. If justice is to be brought to victory, then we must be united in our mission. One of the great tragedies of the church today is that we have pro-life, justice-seeking people who politic and vote in one direction, and we have other pro-life, justice-seeking people who politic and vote in the other direction, thereby dividing the cause of justice, mercy, and life. And to some degree that is inevitable because we will have different views of the role of government and legislation and the like. But brothers and sisters, I believe that our greatest hope in the cause of justice, in the cause of mercy and life for all will happen only if we deliberately join our hearts and join our hands with as much unity and as much cooperation and partnership as we possibly can for the sake of not just the unborn, but the born as well. And to that end, I want to offer you a handful of recommendations and please, P-L-E-A-S, not P-L-E-A-S-E, although please, Listen to these, please. My brain just goes in weird directions sometimes. Recommendation number one, let us unite in prayer for unity. Let us unite in prayer for unity. I'm not saying pray for agreement. I'm not saying pray for the same political, philosophical approach to some of these issues. I am saying let us unite in prayer for unity. As one of your pastors, I'm here to confess that my great, one of my greatest fears for Risen Hope Church in these next months is that the new political election season could rip us apart. Would you please pray with us that it will not touch us. That we will have grace to stay united. That we will have grace to keep the focus. That we will have grace to not let this divide us. We will stand together even if we are on opposite ends of the, of the spectrum politically. We will stand together in Jesus Christ. Please pray for unity. Because without it, we will not last. Number two, let us unite in the mission of the gospel. Let us unite in the mission of the gospel. Philippians 1 verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The gospel that God in Jesus Christ loved us so much. He was so pro-life that He sent His Son into the world on a serious rescue mission to die for us and in our stead and in our place so that we might have life eternal and life abundant. 
That gospel, that gospel is our priority. Politics are not our priority. The gospel is our priority. Will, will you unite in, will we unite in the mission of the gospel? These other things matter. They count. They are important. But the gospel is preeminent. Third, let us unite in a biblically grounded conviction that affirms the humanity and the value of both the born and the unborn. Let's unite in that. Let's unite in a conviction of that and in an affirmation of the, that. I, I believe it is denial to deny this as both Scripture and science make it so obviously true. Let us share this conviction without wavering and with all courage and brothers and sisters, in order to do that, you're going to have to be willing to face the persecution of a world that hates this truth. But will we stand together with courage and faith, even if our society disdains us and despises us as a result? Fourth, let us unite, let us unite in expanding our pro-life message into a whole life message. Let's unite in expanding our pro-life message into a whole life message. What do we mean by a whole life or consistent life ethic? We, we mean a sanctity of life ethic that is not just for the unborn, but is consciously and emphatically for all of life whether unborn or born. We, we believe it is both unbiblical and ineffective to separate life and justice issues. For years in my own life, I considered abortion its own single-issue crisis that demanded the pro-life response, and I saw no connection between abortion and other issues of justice and life. But through the years, several texts of Scripture have convinced me that the more biblical position, the more compelling position, the more unifying position is a whole life ethic, one that sees all of life from the womb all the way to the tomb, all of life having sacredness, all of life being holy. In Scripture, for example, let me show you these, uh, just read these quickly to you. In Scripture, there is clear teaching to show that being pro-life is much more than being anti-murder or anti-killing or anti-abortion. In Matthew 5, for example, Jesus goes out of his way to tell us that anger toward others is a form of murder, which means that part of being pro-life is making a personal commitment to put sinful anger to death in your life. In Matthew 5 and verse 22, Jesus goes on to say that if we insult and demean others and call them names like fool, we are actually killing them with our words, which means that part of being pro-life is making a personal commitment to speak of all other human beings with nothing but respect. 
with no verbal bigotry, belittling, or bullying at all. 1 John 1, John tells us that hating is murder, which means that part of being pro-life is making a personal commitment to love everyone regardless of how they have treated us. In James 3, James tells us that cursing others, which is wishing and speaking harm on them, is deadly poison, which means that part of what it means to be pro-life is to stop cursing others and to wish and speak and do only that which blesses others. In James 4, James tells us that fighting and quarreling with others in order to get what we want is warfare and is murder, which means that part of being pro-life is to stop arguing and quarreling and beating each other up with our words. And in James 5, James teaches us that when we live luxuriously by taking advantage of others or exploiting the underpaid or defrauding workers or condemning innocent people, James says we are murdering them as in a day of slaughter, his words, which means that part of being pro-life is being pro-justice and pro the poor and pro those who are deprived of their basic needs and rights. Being biblically pro-life is much more than being pro-birth. It is consciously and emphatically being for life and dignity and kindness and justice for all people from the womb to the tomb. There is an essential connection between anger and hatred and injustice and neglect of the poor and abuse of the vulnerable and the defrauding of people and the belittling of a human being and the exploiting of others. There's an essential connection between all of those things in God's Word and murder and killing. Thinking of it like this, all of these things are of the same kind, even if of not the same degree. What do I mean by that? The fire that consumes a house and the fire that consumes millions of acres of forest land and hundreds of houses, the fire in each situation is of the same kind but not of the same degree. Hatred, injustice, bigotry, exploitation, sex trafficking, abuse of women, abuse of children, euthanasia, and the killing of the unborn are all of the same kind even if not necessarily to the same degree. To have an argument, we're told in Scripture, is to commit murder. Though we would all agree it would be worse to actually take a knife to that person. Same kind, different degree. If we 
in my judgment, are going to be faithful to Scripture, to the Word of the living God. And if, if we are going to do justice in our generation, and if we are going to be united in the doing of that justice in a way that communicates to a watching world that we are not just narrow, single-issue people who care only about one agenda, but we care about people because they are people made in the image of God. If we are going to have a compelling message for our generation, I believe we must develop and broaden into a whole life ethic and must do so with commitment. There are two things that ought not to be, but are very common in our time on both sides, either side of this issue. There are some who call loudly for the protection of the unborn, but speak with muted voice for the protection of the trafficked, the exiled, the targeted, the bullied, the abused, the oppressed, and the despised. And there are others who call loudly for the rights of the trafficked, the exiled, the targeted, the bullied, the abused, the oppressed, and the despised, but speak with muted voice for the protection of the unborn. Brothers and sisters, neither one ought to be. May we with consistent voice, I, in my opinion, the integrity and credibility of our pro-life and pro-justice cause depends on us unifying these things. So much more to say. Mm. Number five, let me quickly finish. Let us unite in accepting the fact that pro-life people will think differently about pro-life politics. That's just accepted. That's just accepted. But what we cannot accept is this. If you are a left-leaning pro-life Christian, make noise in the party on the left. Raise a ruckus for life. Don't let that party stay as fiercely committed to abortion as it is. Be a voice for life. And if you are right-leaning, then speak up and make noise as there are statements and policies, and I know that people disagree on some of these things, but in my judgment, there are statements, there are policies, there are procedures, there are approaches that fail to do justice to all human beings that fail to respect, call out the leaders on the right to denounce bigots and supremacists and their ilk, to really denounce them and distance from them. Call out people on the right and ask them, what are your plans for the oppressed? And what are your plans for the refugee? And what are your plans for those in need? What I'm saying is, whatever side you're on, make sure you're a voice of conscience on that side. And don't mute the message out of the fear of man. And then finally, I've got to stop. 
let us unite in finding side-by-side ways of protecting and providing for human life from the womb to the tomb. Let us unite in finding ways to be side-by-side in protecting and providing for human life from the womb to the tomb. I, I believe that, I think we may need to call a meeting of some sort. I don't know. This just has come to me today that we need to just have a think tank brainstorm time where we just sit and talk. How do we get on the same side even if we have different politics? We can do this. How do we do it? How do we get side by side for the sake of life? You know, we can certainly join in the work that's already begun with the Amnion Pregnancy Center, a center and a ministry that is serving life, not just while it's in the womb, but before and after, doing a powerful work in our community. This is one of the reasons why the idea of a community center is so appealing to us. And it's not just meeting needs, it's getting us side by side in fighting for the things that matter in our community and in speaking in such a way and coaching and helping and counseling in such a way that young people in our community will learn the value and the dignity of life and will want something better than what they've had themselves. And we do this side by side and we, we, we teach and we coach and we instruct and we encourage and we help so that people will be rising up and making something happen in their lives. This, this somehow we need to get side by side and leave the politics outside in order to do this work in such a way that the world will look on and say, what in the world is going on there? In the same pew, there are people who vote way over here and way over there. But somehow or other, they meet right here. And then they walk right here. And they stand together and they work together and they serve together for the sake of justice. How well we treat people is determined by how much we value them. And we are called in justice. We are called to value people in keeping with how God values them. All the way from the womb to the tomb. Oh Lord, come upon this congregation and bless us. Bless us, oh Lord. For who is sufficient for these things, right? Which of us is sufficient for these things? But he is all sufficient. He is all we need. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us, Lord. We cry out to you for a power and a love that far exceed anything in us power and a love to bind us together in the gospel and in King Jesus and to serve side by side in the cause of justice for all.
from the womb to the tomb, O oh Lord, in Jesus' name.